This morning, we are going to be focusing our attention on the empty tomb, the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Dan Doriani, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, relates the following story, and I quote, One Easter, I appeared on a television panel discussion hosted by a liberal Protestant on the resurrection of Christ. I was the conservative on a panel that also featured a rabbi and another liberal Protestant. Throughout the program, everyone modeled perfect politeness. The host took care to let me speak and to understand me, given that I was the minority member of the group. I sought to make this one claim. The physical resurrection of Jesus is not simply a story. It is a historical fact. The four of us, I suggested, may readily affirm that Jesus lives on in his teaching, that his spirit yet lives, that there is life after death, and that Jesus enjoys such a life with the eternal God in heaven. Beyond that, I proposed that the entire New Testament and Orthodox Christians through the centuries also declare that Jesus' physical body emerged from the grave into which his disciples placed him after his death by crucifixion, end quote. It is extremely important that we recognize this morning that Jesus' resurrection is indeed a physical resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection where his body's in the tomb and his spirit goes on to be with God, or that he lives on in his teaching, or he lives on in the life of the church as we proclaim his truth, but he actually physically lives again, ascended into heaven and one day is going to return. In order to emphasize that fact, we're going to be talking about the empty tomb this morning. And if you're not there, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 as we consider the empty tomb. We begin by looking at the events that lead up to the empty tomb. As the narrative opens, the two Marys went to the tomb of Jesus, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now the two Marys, one of them is identified in the text as Mary Magdalene. The other is not specifically mentioned, but we can assume that it is Mary, the mother of Joseph and James. They're going to the tomb. And as they get to the tomb, they encounter an angel of the Lord that had descended from heaven. The angel's descent was accompanied by a tremendous earthquake in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. The angel rolled back the stone and was just sitting there as though he was just waiting for these women to arrive. End of verse 2. And came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel's magnificence is then described in verse 3. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Like lightning, a startling brilliance. Their white and pure clothing. Well, the, the guards were deathly afraid of this angel in verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Like dead men. Douglas Sean O'Donnell, in his commentary, 
writes concerning their being like dead men, he says, and I quote, I imagine they are pale, frozen in place, and perhaps lying with face on the dirt. They were standing in need of rejuvenation, end quote. The irony here is very poignant. That is, Jesus, who was dead, is now alive, and these guards who were very much alive were now as though they were dead. These men were the elite guard of the Roman army, men who were not readily given to fear, men who had seen much, probably in battle and other situations. Nevertheless, at this instance, they are terrified. However, the angel is there not for the guards, but for these women. For if you notice in verse 5, we have this conversive. It says, but. But there's a strong contrast between the response of the guards and that of the women. The women are also afraid, but not in the way in which these guards are afraid. For it says in verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The women are afraid, but they uh, are reassured by the angel that he knows why they are there and their purpose in coming to see the tomb of Jesus was a noble one. What's striking to me is just as there was an angel to announce the birth of the Lord Jesus, an angel of the Lord, we're told concerning the birth of Jesus uh, for the shepherds, so now too the angel of the Lord comes to announce the resurrection of the Lord. Again in obscurity to the shepherds and now in obscurity to these, these women. But uh, Jesus is denoted as the one who was crucified in the end of verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. This, of course, refers to his death, the fact that they came to see Jesus who had died. He died on the cross. He was crucified. But more than that, it's a shorthand for speaking about all that Jesus had accomplished through his death. For he did not just keel over. <laughs> he just not, did not die of a heart attack, but he had been crucified. Crucified, slain. Bearing the sin and shame of all those that would believe in him. So this phrase, the one who was crucified, becomes a very striking statement that's repeated numerous times in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 reads, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I declared to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says that became the overarching theme of his preaching and teaching. It was all about the fact that Jesus had been crucified, that he died for our sins. And then again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Crucified. So now you have come to see the tomb of Jesus who was crucified. Well, now we come to consider the empty tomb itself. Verse 6. The words of the angel. 
He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. The angel declares that the tomb is empty. In the words, he is not here. He is not here. There have been numerous theories that have been put forward to explain the absence of Jesus' body other than the resurrection. Non-believers have purported such things as the oldest of them, the disciples, stole the body. Others said the Roman or Jewish authorities removed the body. Others said Jesus did not really die. He merely swooned or fainted and eventually woke up and left the tomb. And of course, none of those hold water. I'll say a little bit more about that in a few moments. What is significant is the reasons the angel gives for Jesus not being in the tomb, namely, he is risen. Notice the end of verse 6. He is not here, he has risen. He is risen. He is alive. That's what is meant by saying that he is risen. It's stated clearly in verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He's no longer dead, this crucified one. But he is alive. And further, verse 7, Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. He's alive. He's walking. He's heading to Galilee. And still further, end of verse 7, There you will see him. You will have the opportunity to encounter him. That is the message that the angel gives to women to give to the disciples. But note again what the angel said. He said he is risen, but more than that, he is risen as he said. He is risen as he said. Jesus repeatedly spoke of his death and resurrection before he had died. He told his disciples the significance of his death and the reality that it was not going to end in death, but he would rise again six times. In the book of Matthew alone, Jesus makes reference to his death and resurrection. There are implications far more than the six, but these are very six clearly stated declarations by Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus says to the Pharisees, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So starting in Matthew chapter 16, he begins to lay out this process by which he is going to be crucified and he will be raised. Matthew 17 verse 9, and as they were coming down from the mountain, that is after the uh, transfiguration of Jesus before the disciples. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Matthew 17, 23, he says, 
and they will kill him, referring to himself. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Matthew 20, verse 19. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And he'll be raised the third day. And notice the detail. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, meaning the Jewish leaders are going to condemn him to the Roman government. They, in turn, will mock him. They will flog him. They will crucify him. And on the third day, he will rise. He will rise. Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. This night of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, the last Passover together. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So here's the angel saying to these women, he is not here, he is risen as he said, as he declared, as he taught you that he indeed will rise. Now, unfortunately, the disciples did not grasp these things that Jesus was saying. Uh, they, they did not understand they clearly were not looking for or anticipating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he repeatedly told them that he was going to rise from the dead. But what is rather striking and remarkable is though the disciples did not seem to pay much attention to what Jesus was saying about his death and resurrection, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were. They were very much aware of what Jesus had taught concerning his death and his resurrection. And as a result, when Jesus was, was crucified, we had the Jewish leaders coming to Pilate. And here is what is said. The next day, I'm in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that this imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until this third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the tomb and setting a guard. So here are the disciples, seemingly impervious to what Jesus had taught concerning his death and resurrection, but yet these Jewish leaders, very much aware that Jesus had said he was going to come forth from the grave uh, three days later, and so they said, Let's. Let's set a guard at that tomb. Let's make sure that there is not a fraud that is going to be uh, perpetrated. And that is that these disciples are going to come in the middle of the night and steal this body away and then say he rose from the dead. We can't let that happen. 
And so a guard is set at the tomb. This is the guard that is referred to in verse 4, where it says, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It's also important for us to keep in mind that Jesus spoke of his death and his resurrection. He spoke about how it was to be accomplished and the purposes for it and the reality of the resurrection before any of these events took place. It's helpful for us as we even think about Jesus teaching us about his return, about his coming kingdom, about all these prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, but indeed will be fulfilled because Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus, who spoke of his own resurrection, speaks of our resurrection as well. John 6, excuse me, John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Just as Jesus came bodily forth from the grave, there is a day yet future when all those who are dead in Christ shall rise, and we too will come bodily forth from the grave to live again. Not in just some spiritual sense in which our spirit goes on, although that's meaningful, for the scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, our body goes in the grave and our spirit goes to be with, with God. And that is a wonderful event and one for which we are tremendously thankful and we are conscious in the presence of God. But that's not the end. That's not the end. Jesus Christ will return and we will be raised physically from the dead in the very bodies that we have now. And we will live, and we will live eternally, and we will live with him. And we will live this life that is very similar to the life which we now live on this earth, but without sin, and in the very presence of God and enjoying him forever. But we have now in this passage an invitation to view or examine the empty tomb. Notice in verse 6, He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Now the invitation, Come, see the place where he lay. The angels sitting on the, the very stone that had been rolled away from the entrance to the tomb, and he bids them, Come, come, see, look at the place where he lay. Come view the place where the dead and lifeless body was placed and no longer is here. These women had witnessed the placing of the body in the tomb. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 59 and following, we have an account of Jesus' dead body being placed in the tomb. And it reads, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary were there 
sitting opposite the tomb. They were there when Joseph came and placed the body of Jesus in his own tomb. On Monday, excuse me, on Good Friday, I spoke about the prophecy regarding the death of Jesus, that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked, but be buried with the rich. And I emphasized the fact that a person that was condemned for blasphemy, which is why the Jewish people condemned him, and then was condemned by the Roman government, both entities would have wanted the body to be uh, disgraced, and yet he was placed in the tomb of a rich man, namely Joseph of Arimathea. And what a blessing that was, for it was possible to see that the tomb was empty. If he would have just been left hanging on the cross for the birds and animals to devour, like the Roman government sometimes did, or if he would have been buried in a communal open grave, which the Jewish people did to dishonor the body, none of those would have resulted in an empty tomb. None of those would have resulted in the same kind of uh, proof that we have with guards guarding this body. But in the sovereignty and goodness of God, there is an empty tomb, and these women are invited to examine it. Uh, again, Daniel Doriani in his commentary uh, refers to a man, John Dominic Crossan. And uh, let me read this to you. I quote, John Dominic Crossan, an ardent foe of Orthodox Christianity and a scholar whose flair for presentation makes him popular with the media, has updated these criticisms, these theories of what happened to the body of Jesus. He likes to say that Jesus was crucified, deserted by all his disciples, then buried in a shallow grave with other criminals. His body was probably eaten by scavenging dogs. As for his body, those who cared did not know where it was, and those who did not know did not care. And then he goes on to say, do Christians claim Jesus' tomb was empty? Then Crossan says they went to the wrong tomb. Christians reply, if they went to the wrong tomb, all the authorities had to do, and the Christian movement was to go to the right tomb and produce the body. Point is, none of those theories hold water, nor are they substantiated by history at all as to the events that actually took place. No, the tomb was empty, and they were invited to come and look at it. What is also interesting in the surrounding text is that the guards were eyewitnesses of all that had taken place. And in Matthew chapter 28, we find out what the guards do. And that is, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Uh, it would have been a death penalty for these Roman soldiers to have fallen asleep on duty and allowed this body to have been stolen. Roman law would have said that they should have been killed 
That's why it says, we'll keep you out of trouble. Don't worry, you won't die. We have strings. You'll be okay, but say you fell asleep and say that it was stolen. Verse 15, so they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This day meaning the writing of the New Testament. But it continues down to this very day of people saying, well, the body was stolen. Once again, Dan Doriani says this, and I quote, there is a delicious irony here. The authorities try to cover up the resurrection by advancing the very story that they had wanted to prevent. They posted a guard so no one would steal the body and say that he had risen. Now they tell the guard to say they fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. In this way, they actually spread the story of the empty tomb. The authorities also demonstrate their depravity. Early, earlier, they had demanded that Jesus perform a sign that would let them believe. Jesus said they would get no sign but his resurrection, Matthew 12, verses 38 and 40. Now they have the sign they sought. But instead of believing, they attempt to destroy the evidence, end quote. The irony, they tried to keep this story from happening, that the disciples stole the body. They did everything they could to make sure the disciples didn't steal the body. Now that the body's gone, now they say the disciples came and they stole it. But as was said, when the disciples, excuse me, when the Jewish leader said to Jesus, give us a sign to show us that you are the Messiah, he said there will be no sign given you but the resurrection. They got their sign. And it was attested to not merely by the women, but it was attested to by the guards themselves. They came. And they told them what happened. They declared concerning the angel. They declared concerning the resurrection. And of course, they still did not believe. So let's look at the events following the empty tomb. The angel gives the Marys a job to do, and that is to tell others. Verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Furthermore, they are to tell the disciples that Jesus had preceded them to Galilee, middle of verse 7, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And still further, the disciples will see him there. End of verse 7. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. And again, this is in keeping with Jesus' last declaration to his disciples before he dies concerning his resurrection. Matthew 26, 32. But after I raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He told him where the meeting, the rendezvous place was going to be. And now, Jesus, having risen from the dead, on his way to Galilee... The angel says, tell the disciples, he'll meet you in Galilee. The two Marys were obedient to all that they heard, verse 8. So, because of what they had heard, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. They were eager to deliver the message. 
But now the, the Marys unexpectedly encountered Jesus, verse 9. And behold, behold, look at this. Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took him, the cold of his feet, and worshipped him. Note Jesus' words, greetings, greetings. This was a warm welcome. This was a kind welcome. Not, I told you so. Not, then you realize this was going to happen. But simply greets them. And though they had feared the angel, they embraced Jesus, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. They grabbed hold of him. Note, again, the physical body of Jesus. Not just an apparition, not just a ghost, not just an appearance, but a physical body standing before them, and they come up and they grab hold of his feet and hold on to him, embracing him, showing their love and their commitment to him. And Then these very important words at the end of verse 9 and worshipped him, and worshipped him, honored him as God, as God. They understood the implication of all that took place. He truly was the Son of God, and they worshipped him. There are four times in the book of Matthew where Jesus is worshipped. The first time that Jesus is worshipped is at his birth by the wise men who had come from the east. Matthew 2, verse 2. Words of the wise men, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to Worship him. That was the word that they gave to Herod. We've come to worship him. And then they indeed did worship him in Matthew 2.11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. He was worshipped at his birth. The next occasion in which Jesus is worshipped is he is with his disciples and he is in a boat and that boat is about to sink. He's in a storm where the winds are blowing, where the waves are crashing and these seasoned fishermen are fearing for their lives and they wake Jesus and say, don't you care that we're perishing? And the scripture says, he rebuked the wind and the seas. And immediately they were calm. And they marveled. And they said, who is this man? That even the winds and the seas obey him. Matthew fourteen thirty three, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, 
Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. Even the winds and the seas obey you. And then Jesus is worshipped after the resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. As we think of this great passage this morning, what should our takeaways be? Well, first, what should our response be to the empty tomb? First is to believe. To believe. To place our faith and trust in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's richly attested to by the Word of God, by history, by eyewitness accounts, and we could go on. Believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's believing in the resurrection of Christ that we are saved. The first is to believe. The second is to tell others. To tell others. Even as these women were commissioned by the angels to go and tell the disciples. Then the resurrected Lord himself, who rendezvous with his disciples as he said he would in Galilee, and offered the words which we come to know as the Great Commission, Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel. Tell others. Tell others. That is our great duty and responsibility this morning. Tell others that Jesus rose from the dead. Tell others that Jesus was crucified. Tell others why, why, why. Jesus died on the cross in order for our sins to be forgiven, in order that we could have peace with God, in order that we could live with him forever and ever in order that we would have transformed lives. If there were any other way for salvation to occur, Jesus never would have died, but there was no other way. And that teaches us that there is no other way for us to be saved than to place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So this morning, if you're here this and you have never, ever acknowledged your sinfulness, if you've never said, I'm a sinner. I stand in need of forgiveness. The scripture says, for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. There's not one of us here this morning that can honestly say we never lied. <laughs> we never did anything wrong. It's not true. It's not true. And we know in our hearts of hearts it's not true. We stand in need of forgiveness. And Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be right with God. Believing in him. Asking for forgiveness. Trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone as our Savior. Leaving that first ourselves and then taking that message to others. And lastly, lastly, to worship him. To worship him. What we have done this morning is very appropriate. We've come 
to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews said that was blasphemy. As we started this message, there are many that will heap accolades upon Jesus. When Jesus was with his disciples early on in his ministry, in the book of Mark, he asks them a simple question. Who do men say that I am? What are people saying about me? What are, what's people's understanding of who I am? What, what do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? And their answer was, some say thou art John the Baptist. Some Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but who do you say that I am? They said, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. God opened your eyes and gave you that understanding that I am the Son of God. People say wonderful things about Jesus. He's a prophet. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. He was a healer. He was this. He was that. But what we have to say is, he's God. He's God in the flesh. And we've come to worship him. We give him the honor and the glory and the praise and the allegiance of which he is worthy. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray for any who have gathered here this morning who have never placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that you would work in their hearts and that today they would acknowledge their faith and trust in Jesus and I'd like to give you that opportunity this morning, not in any way embarrassing you, but our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed. If there's anyone that, that would like to acknowledge that this morning they have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, if you quickly raise your hand, and I will pray for you, not by name, but uh, generally, um, but I want to commit you to the Lord. Anyone here this morning that has placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we, we pray for those that are gathered here this day who do know you and ask that we would be faithful in telling others this great and wonderful news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead just as he said. And he's coming back and he's establishing his kingdom. And Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, giving you your due allegiance, honoring you above all others. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.